0: In his debut book, The Energy Switch, leading energy expert Peter Kelly Detweiler, my guest for this episode, is exploring the power grid's transformation in the States and around the world. The Energy Switch is a first-of-its-kind thorough dive into the energy industry. It provides relatable, first-hand insight into how energy companies and consumers are transforming the electrical grid as well as the future of power. From renewables to storage, new technologies and EVs, to name but a few topics, this book is a step-by-step guide of the industry and an inspiration for all project managers and leads out there. And on a personal note, what I really enjoyed in this book was not only the knowledge that the author clearly has on the subject, but the engaging language and narration technique he uses. I expected a dry academic dissertation and I was surprised to find out that our industry can be not only suspenseful, but also fun. Welcome to the EU Project Zone, a podcast series from Enlid and Friends, focusing on the energy transition and the EU commission-funded projects that will help us achieve it. My name is Areti Daradimu, and I am the host of the EU Project Zone. So, Peter, thank you very much for for joining me today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: My first question to you regards your first chapter. I was a little bit surprised because in the very first chapter of your book, you make quite a bold statement. You write that the energy transition dwarfs the industrial revolution. Can you please elaborate a little bit on that?
1: Sure, first of all, the size of society and just our general economy is so much larger. I mean, there's eight plus billion of us versus you know a much smaller population back then. but the but the real critical piece of it is, is not just the the overall size, but how the transition will impact every aspect of our energy existence, and energy informs everything we do, right? So how we drive, when we switch a light bulb on, Everything, it has to be decarbonized, and in the Industrial Revolution, we ad-hoced our way into it. That is, society saw opportunities, made investments, there was money there, so they went and did things. The steam engine led to all kinds of other developments, business models, inventions. But nobody was looking at this from, from a top-down perspective, trying to say, how do we shift an entire global economy from here to here within the space of less than a generation? That is a massive transformation, which is estimated to require investment somewhere around $100 trillion between now and 2050.
0: And how did we get here?
1: Well, we got here because we've been developing our economies all around the planet and becoming increasingly sophisticated. And certainly coal and natural gas and all the other hydrocarbons that have been stored underground for eons, storing carbon essentially that gives us the climate, that Goldilocks not too hot, not too cold climate we enjoy now is because all this carbon was sequestered. Then we dig it up, we burn it, we generate electricity, create gasoline, etc., enjoy our lives, but we have this externality, this cost, we hadn't factored in until recently, which is carbon emissions, whether it's CO2 or methane or some of these other nasties out there. And now we understand, oh, this isn't going to be helpful for future generations. And it's something we're really going to have to reckon with. So now we sit down and say, all right, how do we shift this whole thing and change the dynamic?
0: And how will the grid Uh, evolve, in your opinion? Will those nasties leave us alone?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, it's pretty inevitable. You don't argue with atmospheric chemistry. So we got to figure this out. So then how will the grid evolve? All right. So we're already seeing in some grids a very significant amount of renewables integration that starts to lead to some challenges at some point. So let's take, for example, uh, Australia. You've got three million Uh, rooftop solar installations in Australia already. South Australia, you see so much solar coming into the system. That first quarter of this year, wholesale market prices were negative $12 Australia on average during the entire quarter from 10 o'clock in the morning to three in the afternoon. Too much solar. Uh, Places like Maui, now 50.8% renewables integration. You got wind, you got solar, but now you start to add batteries. So like 1.0 is the old grid before we thought about decarbonizing. 2.0, the way I think about it is you integrate about 30% renewables, wind and solar into the mix, and you change the way you operate your gas-fired plants. You ramp those up and down a lot more to allow those variable renewable resources to come into the grid because they produce at certain times and not at others. So you take your existing gen fleet, you push some of it out, and you work the rest of it harder and make it more flexible. Then ultimately, you get enough renewables, you've got to add batteries. So the 3.0 piece is what we're doing now, adding like the full four hours of lithium ion batteries, maybe six hours, that allows you to time shift a lot of your solar and some of your wind to meet peak demand. But ultimately, to decarbonize the grid, that means you've got to look at things from a seasonal perspective you're not getting as much solar energy in the winter time your wind patterns shift now you need long duration storage to essentially to push those carbon molecules out of those more difficult hours that probably requires generation of green hydrogen taking clean energy putting it through electrolyzers taking water turning it into h 2 and O, and then taking that hydrogen molecule and putting it through turbines and fuel cells During the periods of the year, when demand is high, renewables might be lower. And so you're essentially having to go that last mile probably with hydrogen.
0: Okay, but projects like this uh, need money Uh and also technology and not the entire world has money and the right technology. So if you see, let's say, uh, the map of the world, there are countries that are very much progressed, that are quite wealthy, that can afford to do the transition. And then you have countries that are not as wealthy and cannot afford the transition. So what difference will emerge in various regions of the world?
1: Okay, so the first thing that happens is the countries that are wealthy need to scale because this whole thing has been repeated time and time again, which is, You innovate, you scale, you drive the cost down. So you have these initial beachheads, economic islands, if you will, where you make stuff cost effective and drive the cost down far enough that they can be adopted by other economies that couldn't afford them in the first place. Right. So with hydrogen, for example, you see, well, globally, a half a trillion dollars worth of stated investments in hydrogen, but they're mostly in developed economies. Ultimately, they'll bleed into other economies. China, for example, not as well economically developed yet more reliant on coal and hydrocarbons and certainly nations in africa and other places in asia saying look you in the west emitted all this carbon right you're the ones who started this whole thing now you're asking us to catch up and you're not helping us finance it well the fact of the matter is we're all stuck in this little blue ball we all live here right so we have to figure out how we sequence this thing and how we do it cost-effectively and ultimately how we engage everybody in this by making the technologies more cost-effective and the business models more attractive over time. And we don't have many decades to get this done in.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It is getting more and more difficult and more and more um, important to go on with this energy transition. But what will be the implications uh, that we will have in our daily lives?
1: Well, so the first thing is um, we'll wake up in the morning and whatever uh, switch we flip, it could be that the energy comes from a battery that was in our home for those of us who can afford it. Right. And obviously that's not everybody. Um, And then we go downstairs and we may work from home. Many of us will do that for a long time. Solar on the rooftop could be feeding the computers with which, you know, we're looking at each other. Other people jump into their electric vehicle. It might have been charged the day before by solar with a battery that sequenced the charging for the vehicle. Other people are going to climb onto an electric bus, maybe a fuel cell bus, maybe jump into an electric train. All modes of transport will be powered by electrons eventually. Buildings, the ones we walk into, they won't be heated by natural gas anymore. They'll be heated by some form of ground source heat pumps. Um, more efficient technologies, more insulated buildings. Many of them may have solar skins on the side of the building where the glass is today. And so ultimately, all the things we do, the FedEx truck that shows up or the Amazon vehicle is going to be electric. Um, The cartons that we get will be recyclable. We have circular economies moving everywhere. So ultimately, if you move to a fully sustainable future, you create these circular economies for all your materials, powered by renewable energy that's the world we eventually will have to migrate into if the eight nine billion of us hope to live here in some kind of sustainable acceptable fashion
0: i can't help but uh, but thinking while you were uh, talking and narrating let's say a little bit how our future will be that if you had said these things 30 years uh, in the past you would be a colleague of uh, philip k dick my my favorite sci-fi writer uh but still they do sound a little bit um, futuristic even in 2021 so earlier you also discussed green hydrogen and it has become the talk of the town at least for the past couple of years even the eu commission is betting on this horse would you or you would pick a, a different uh, renewable energy source you know i
1: think um you see a lot of announcements out there the real challenges is- getting the renewables cheap enough, and then driving down the cost of the electrolyzers, that thing that separates the water into the hydrogen and the oxygen. If the cost of the electrolyzers follow the same trajectory that solar modules have followed and batteries have followed, for example, batteries have fallen by 90% in costs over the last, uh, from 2010 to today, right? So the last 11 years. If electrolyzers do that, then hydrogen becomes more and more viable. Where it will happen first is probably decarbonizing steel and cement, those really hard-to-abate sectors. And again, the same model, for example, batteries in the grid didn't start there. and They weren't cost-effective in the grid. They were cost-effective in electric vehicles, and then they scaled to the grid. I think the same thing happens with hydrogen. It first focused on steel and other heavy industry, and then that juggernaut of the economy built around that then gets cost effective and scales, so we can start to apply it to the power grid as well. Although you are starting to see projects in Europe and a couple in the U.S. already. There's one in Ohio. GE and New Fortress Energy say within the next year, year and a half, they're going to have a turbine that's running on 10% hydrogen and by 2030 running 100% green hydrogen generating electricity about 400 megawatts out of that single turbine. So you see these initial signposts on the way that tell us this is the direction our future is probably arcing in. And we'll know in another couple of years based on the facts on the ground whether that's really happening or whether there's more hype than reality there.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. And um, and what about storage? Because we, we really need to store this energy if we want to use it. And um, right now the storage that we use mostly is the nickel manganese, if I pronounce it correctly, cobalt oxide uh, based storage, which is both ethically and economically not very viable. Ethically, because as we know, cobalt is a little bit uh, um, uh, connected to child labor, etc. However, we see uh, for the past few years that we are trying to transition again uh, to LFP storage, which is the uh, lithium ion uh, phosphate. Now, my question to you is, how fast are we doing that, and are there, and is it both economically and ethically important to do that? Although I did already say it is.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, look, you can't have a sustainable transition if it's not ethical, right? It, it, that, that just doesn't work for, for what we want for ourselves as a society. So let's start with that nickel manganese cobalt battery. So first of all, it's got relatively limited cycle life, say 2,000 cycles. Um, The cobalt, 60 to 70 percent of it comes out of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And a lot of that is controlled by China. And there was a great New York Times article a couple of weeks ago talking about how the safety standards in the mines have been slipping now that a lot of those mines have been sold off by Western companies. Then you also have about 90, 80 to 90 percent of that cobalt processed by China. It's not healthy globally for any one country to dominate. So and and because Um, It's an inelastic resource. That is, it takes a couple of years to build a cobalt mine. They're usually built in concert with nickel mines or copper mines, because it's hard to find enough cobalt to justify making them themselves. Supply tends to lag demand. So you see these price spikes. So for all those reasons, it's a challenge. So now you start to see lithium iron phosphate move into the equation. And Tesla's Model 3 in China, for example, has that lithium iron phosphate. The cool thing about LIFP is, it used to be about 3,000 cycle lives. Now you're starting to see it at 7,000. I was talking to the CEO of a storage company that said now they can get 7,000 cycle, 20 year warranties for power storage projects. So, But you still have the lithium, and lithium is mined in the salars up in the Altiplano, Argentina, Bolivia, Peru. And there's water table issues there and it's hurting the local agriculture but you also have a lot of it in australia in hard rock spodumene mines some in portugal some in the united states where i am so lithium has some constraints but um it seems like we're certainly moving to a lesser challenge with lithium iron phosphate where i'm excited is now you start to see though the next generations of chemistries emerging like solid state which will get you twice the energy twice the density and more stable chemistries. And then you see for the grid companies like form energy, which is talking about reversible rust technology. So iron, we have tons of iron available to us in the world, right? So like all the other evolution of other technologies, we look at these things like we're in the static snapshot and we don't often step back and recognize two things. One, change is inevitable technologically and otherwise. And two, though, it's accelerating. And it's accelerating because computers are faster. Some of these computers looking for better chemistries can do 100 quadrillion calculations per second, combining elements in the periodic table to make new compounds. And there's one company, for example, in China, Contemporary Amperex Technology. They have a thousand scientists with doctorates, like PhDs, all looking at better battery chem so the the chemistries we're looking at 10 years from now could be considerably different and then you have companies like um, one of them energy vault they raise and lower 35 ton bricks each one worth a megawatt hour and it's made out of dirt infused with polymer and they just raise those absorbing energy when they raise them drop them turns up you know releases energy and so there's all these new technologies liquid air all these other ways that people are trying to figure out how can we absorb energy at some times when we have too much renewables and how can we release it at other times to provide a more stable grid so there's some really interesting technologies and business models evolving out there
0: excellent that makes us also feel a little bit more optimistic for our future Another topic that I want to touch upon a little bit with you is that of um, of cybersecurity. Because in your book, you do describe the Ukraine hacking incident of 2015, which was a shock to an entire community back then. And we still use it in every event and every panel discussion I go to. Someone will uh, discuss the Ukraine hacking incident. How vulnerable are utilities still in cyber attacks? Have we learned our lesson, you think?
1: No. And and 2015 was bad, but 2016 was even worse because there they came back again and they only attacked one transformer, but the intent was to cause physical harm to the grid and also potentially kill linemen because the reclosers were intended not to function. And so that challenge now gets exacerbated. One, because you bring artificial intelligence into the game on both sides of the equation. If you think about a soccer or football game, the way you call it, Uh, offense or American football, offense always has an advantage over defense because offense is planning the attack and defense is trying to anticipate what it's going to be. It's the same way in cyber. And so you have this spy versus spy equation out there where you bring more computational capability for the hackers and the defense is trying to figure that out too. So now you start to read about artificial intelligence being used as the next tool in this game. The other interesting challenge um, is that as you start to build out a network of distributed energy resources, the batteries, the water heaters, the electric vehicle chargers, all the things on that so-called grid edge behind the meter, those devices become so significant in terms of quantity, capacity, and energy that at some point, As a hacker, you don't even need to attack that central fortress, that SCADA system run by the utilities, because now the fortress is kind of everywhere. In a future distributed energy world, all you've got to do now is find the most weakly defended points. It could be an electric vehicle charging network that's meant to absorb and release a lot of energy really fast and go and hack that thing, or a bunch of electric vehicles. And typically, vendors don't spend as much time as utilities do in cyber hardening. The good news is, Um, There are a bunch of agencies working to up the standards in the distributed network that we're building out right now. But we certainly can't let our guard down because there's too much at stake. And as we electrify more and more of society, we're putting more eggs into that basket and all things being equal, increasing the level of risk we're building into the systems.
0: So it's sort of a game between a hacker and the utility expert trying to come on top. And it's scary a little bit, if I may say so. No, oh, it's a lot uh, scary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so another aspect in your book that I really enjoyed was the fact that you interviewed many people that actively work in the industry. It's not just people that are around it and uh, etc. people that actively work in the industry. So you shared with us their ideas, their hopes, their worries. But did you get the impression that they collaborate efficiently with different links of the same chain or are they closed in their own team silos?
1: You know, it's kind of like our educational systems. We learn science, you know, physics, math, chemistry, poetry, literature, and those pieces are not integrated the way we learn them. Um, and And the challenge of the grid is it is all integrated because it serves all society. And in general, in order to do something really, really well, you kind of do have to focus on the vertical segment you're in. And so... For me, one of the biggest organizational and political and cultural challenges is to figure out how to get beyond that. Because, no, you don't see a lot of coordination that way. And, in fact, my business, my job is to read two to four hours a day and cross-pollinate ideas all the time because those gaps in understanding and coordination and culture exist. And it's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because, frankly, I couldn't find a resource anywhere that explained to me how all the pieces fit together and if you pulled on this piece of yarn over here why this one over here moved and so that's a big problem and a challenge and an opportunity
0: excellent yes i agree with you it is an opportunity but um, i can't help but uh, think that i would rather have the pieces of the puzzle get-together sooner rather than later.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what conferences and learning and communications is all about. And it's a constant effort that has to be, it can't be something we ad hoc our way into. We have to think about that deliberately and discuss it and make sure that different parts of the industry are talking to each other and understanding contextually. And a really, really great example, you can only add so much solar or wind into the system, unless you have batteries or flexible resources, they have to move in tandem, but we don't often plan that way. And that's one of the challenges for the future. And in fact, if you do wanna build out that fully interactive, efficient grid, that means you have to step back and look at the whole thing and say, what kind of information and communications platforms do we need to be investing in now to enable that grid for 10 years from today or 15 years from today? There's not a lot of people sitting down architecturally discussing those investments and what we have to build today foundationally to enable that future.
0: Mm -hmm. And speaking of those pieces uh, that we said of the puzzle, let's focus a little bit to one of them, the political one. So how plausible are, in your opinion, the goals the world has set for 2030 and 2050? And here I mean the Paris Agreement, COP26.
1: Sure. Well, technically will have the tools because they keep on evolving as we need them. I mean, that, that sounds a little bit too naive, but the reality is we see that happening with innovation all the time. If there is a need and there's money there, people figure it out. We're a very innovative species. That's not what concerns me. What concerns me is that this is really complex stuff. It involves a level of understanding and trust in experts, and we're in a world where arguably a very significant portion of society, and all you have to do is look at vaccines and those sorts of issues, you find that a lot of people do not understand or look at things holistically and think about the greater good rather than what I want as an individual. And so we're moving into a challenging time because society is getting increasingly complex Um, And yet there's this pull in the other direction with a lot of people saying, don't tell me what to do. I don't want to engage in this. I don't trust big government. And ultimately, this COP26 and all these things, they involve a level of coordination and trust and a global movement to do something really huge. And I have some concerns about the political will and our cohesion as a global community to make that happen.
0: Yes, I think you're not alone in this one, (laughs) Peter. Uh, With this, uh, our time has come to an end. I want to thank you very, very much for joining me, for uh, sharing information with me, and for having this, uh, I hope, as fun for you as it was for me, conversation.
1: I enjoyed myself immensely. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: You've been listening to the EU Project Zone podcast, brought to you by Enlid and France. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, and the Enlid Europe website. Just hit subscribe and you can access our other episodes too. I'm Areti Daradimu, host of this podcast series, and I thank you for joining us.